Looking back at some of the other honors, there's the We Met Caddy Scholarship Fund. You must be very proud of that. I'm very proud of that. Uh, that Caddy Fund was organized in 1949, and uh, it has been a source of great satisfaction to me. There's no story that could ever be told that is richer or sweeter than the story of Francis and Eddie. And may your lives be full of birdies and eagles. Welcome to Legacy, the We Met Fun podcast. On today's episode, we welcome on Dr. Jacqueline Maloney, Chancellor Emerita and Professor at UMass Lowell. Dr. Maloney's career is as expansive as it is impressive. Raised in Tewksbury, she was the first of her family to attend college and went on to earn a bachelor's degree in sociology from UMass Lowell in 1975. Following graduation, Dr. Maloney worked as a social worker in the Lowell area, focused on helping those with special needs, and later on as the director of the Indo-Chinese Refugees Foundation. This experience of growing up as a first-generation college student, as well as then helping those with little to no resources, shaped her career motivation. After earning her doctorate degree from the Graduate School of Education at UMass Lowell, making her a double river hawk as those on campus would know, Dr. Maloney soon became the Dean of Online and Continuing Education at UMass Lowell. A visionary in online education, she was the architect of UMass Lowell's online program in a time when such things didn't exist. Dr. Maloney helped UMass Lowell become one of the first brick-and-mortar schools in the country to provide online courses, and what started as a few offerings decades ago blossomed into more than 40 degree and certificate programs and north of 25,000 online enrollments each year. Under her tenure, UMass Lowell's online education program earned international honors for excellence in teaching, education, and academic programs. To attempt to sum up Dr. Maloney's career is a nearly impossible task due to the enormity of her impact on UMass Lowell and in the Lowell area. She was appointed Executive Vice Chancellor of UMass Lowell in 2007 and for the next 15 years led the school through a period of record gains in student enrollment, research, diversity expansion, and fundraising. Dr. Maloney stewarded the UMass Lowell 2020 plan, a decade-long endeavor started in 2010, which enhanced nearly every aspect of student and faculty life, as well as the school's national reputation. From 2010 to 2020, UMass Lowell increased operating revenues by more than 100%, quadrupled the scholarship endowment, added or improved upon a staggering 19 buildings on campus, and saw the school ranked as the second fastest rising school, according to U.S. News and World Reports. In 2015, Dr. Maloney succeeded her predecessor, Marty Meehan, to become the first female chancellor of UMass Lowell a position she held through 2022. Her impact on the school is undeniable, and in 2014, the primary gathering space and student engagement center on campus included the Jacqueline and Edward Maloney Hall to recognize the couple's status in UMass Lowell lore. Dr. Maloney is a pioneer in higher education and remains a legend on campus at UMass Lowell. Some students are even lucky enough to have her as their professor as she continues teaching to this day. We thank Dr. Maloney for her time, and we hope you enjoy our conversation with her around growing up in Tewksbury, her impact on UMass Lowell, and where she sees higher education expanding in the future. Thank you for listening. Dr. Maloney, are you still, are you in Massachusetts now? I know you were down south in Florida, you know, playing some I golf. I am in Massachusetts. Well, it's starting to warm up. You'll be able to start playing soon, right? Yeah, I go back this week. I'm kind of back and forth every couple of weeks. I'm still obviously doing things at the university. So, but yeah, looking forward to it. When does this course start that you're going to be teaching? I've been teaching this semester. This semester, okay. Yeah, I'm in the course now. Well, we're very excited because as we look outside this week, it's, you know, 65, 70, 75 degrees. And I think we're all hoping to get our clubs out of the trunk soon. <laughs> Is your course open yet? It's open. Yeah. I, you know, we play a lot of public courses around here. We're based out of Norton, but I'm looking out the window here and TPC Boston right outside the window is certainly open and has getting a lot of play. So Colin, you and I have played one round together, but we'll get out there again soon. 
Yeah, I got my second nine in yesterday at Foxborough. So I've got 118 under my belt. <laughs> well, I look forward to getting you both out to Vesper with Moriarty and <laughs> we'll have a few laughs. Well, that's one of the oh, best courses. Be that's very kind of you. And it'd be fun to play with him. As you've noted, he may know every person at that course and every person who's ever been at that course. Like I said the last <laughs> time, yeah, it's hard to get through even a whole much less a round without coming across just about everybody in the city. So. <laughs> well, grateful for Jim Moriarty here at the We Met Fund. And Dr. Maloney, thank you so much for taking the time today. We know you're very busy and it's really exciting for us to have you on. We're looking forward to talking with you about your amazing career, both before and during your time at UMass Lowell, and how you've had such an incredible impact on the area that you've grown up in. We know how modest you are about your achievements, but they really are staggering. But before we get to that, I think we'd love to start where we begin with all of our guests. You know, I know you've had a slightly different path to golf than others that we've had on, but now you're in love with it. So I think we'd like to hear, how did you come to learn about the game and what was your introduction to golf? Well, before we go forward, please call me Jackie. Thank I'm you. not sure you could even qualify what I do as golf. <laughs> I'm the expert that I'm sure are listening. I'm strictly a hacker, but I do love the game and I often wonder, you know, how is it possible that one could love something that could be that frustrating? <laughs> but you know, after watching the Masters over last weekend and watching some of them, their shots, I didn't feel so bad. You know, <laughs> they missed the same time in. So, but honestly, I came to golf much later in life after my kids were a little grown up and wanted to introduce them to the game. We joined Vesper. And I definitely fell in love with it very quickly. And of course, my husband's an avid golfer, so there really wasn't much choice, Tom. <laughs> so we golf a lot together. We introduced our children to it, both young women who carried the game with them to this day. And now all my four grandchildren are golfers. So it's a passion for the family. That's great. Kind of a question for you about growing up nearby Vesper. Did you know about golf? Was it something like, I'm not interested in that, or that's just something that you know you don't participate in? Or was golf really foreign to you for a while as a youngster? I grew up in a very large family. We had nine children, so golf wasn't on the list. Everybody worked pretty hard in my family. So I got introduced to it later by my husband while we are in college. That's fantastic. But, you know, Vesper was always so well-known, and it's just such a beautiful course and country club. We're very lucky to be a part of the Vesper community. It's a special place, special place for we met as well. Jackie, circling back to that, the beginning of your story, and again, we'll touch later on the impact that you've had in the area that you've grown up in, but talk us through growing up, I think, in Tewksbury, Mass., correct? Yes. Not many people, at least nowadays, can relate to living in a house with as many siblings as you did. Tell us a little bit about that environment and the dynamic. What was the atmosphere like, the age range, you and your sisters? So, Colin, you know, we covered a large fan and... <laughs> It was a very busy, hectic household, but you know I had great parents, and among the many great things and lessons that they taught us in life, having such a large family, we learned very quickly how important it is to take care of each other. Everybody had a job, everybody had a role at every meal, so you're taught a lot of responsibility, not just for yourself, but looking out for the whole family. All of my sisters went on to do great. I have seven sisters and a brother, and everybody in the family did wonderful. I was lucky. I was the only one that went to college first in my family, but they were very successful. You know, at that time, you could still do that without a college degree behind your name. So they all went on to be successful, but they encouraged me to go to college. Why they picked me, I'm not sure, but I'm happy they did. 
That's right. And you mentioned jobs around the house for you and all of your siblings. Speaking of jobs, I know you've come to know many We Met scholars in your time, both in your personal golfing life, but especially through your time at UMass Lowell. So many scholars talk about caddying or working at the bag drop as their first job, where they got that first sense of earning for themselves, managing their time and answering to somebody above them. You know, to this day, many reference that experience as when lessons were learned that they carry with them. Yes. When did you find yourself looking for that first job that was a paying job and where or what was that? Sure. I started very early on as a waitress at a local diner, which was not that far from home. So on some days I could actually walk there. I worked at that diner from the time I was 15 until I was in college. By the time I was in college, it was family for me. Cooking breakfast every Saturday morning was it was fun. But like you said, the same with our caddies at Vesper, you do learn a lot of life lessons and you find in those environments that you do have that extended family feeling, again, where people are looking out for each other and especially the next generation. So growing up, sure, as the young woman, as a waitress and a diner, a lot of our customers had their own businesses. They were all hardworking people. And so, you know, it was a fun environment, hardworking. You learn to appreciate that. And I feel the scene translates over for our caddies. Certainly at Vesper, you see them, their first gen students for the most part, even those that aren't, their parents want them to have that work experience. And certainly I've found throughout my career, people who start early in life, working at those kinds of hands-on frontline jobs, boy, you learn a lot. So absolutely. I mean, I'm just thinking of our very first guest that we had on the podcast, Dick Conley, and talking about the work ethic and going to work caddying for his family. I mean, was that something that was instilled like, okay, everyone's going out when it's time to get a job and we're doing this for all of us because there's a lot of a lot of mouths to feed. Absolutely. It was teamwork. And I did listen to his podcast. It was great. But I think, you know, we were part of that generation. I do see it today. And again, many of the women scholars where the family is important, you help each other. And I used to drive my sister. She actually ran a diner down the street from the one I ran. I'd drop her <laughs> off at five o'clock in the morning and go open up the other one. But yeah, we all took care of each other. And, you know, again, that teamwork approach, family, community, I think it extends to the community when you do jobs like that. You did mention that you were the first to go to college, but you know, just thinking of education in general, it is and has been a central theme to your life and career. Can we just go back to your house, you know, growing up? What were the conversations like at the dinner table about education, you know, whether it was high school and then college specifically? Obviously, education was very important. We all knew that. For my older sisters, many of them went to Catholic private schools. By the time the second half of the family came along, it wasn't as affordable to have all of us going. So we enjoyed our public schools. And I felt very fortunate to go through the public school system that I went through and eventually set my own kids through in Chelmsford. Now, I personally, and this was true in our family, have a great appreciation for teachers. They are just one of the most incredible assets in our communities and cultures. And sometimes I don't think we give them enough credit But that was something that we were taught very early on, respect for teachers, for the education that you're getting. That was a very important lesson to admire those teachers and they deserve it. 
Amen. Both my parents were teachers as well, happily retired and also on a golf course. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was going to say the same thing. My sister would be happy to hear that as well. She too is a teacher and you're absolutely right. It's an extremely hard job and they love it and they deserve to be compensated as such because it's such a challenging job, but it's so important. So well said. And so, you know, going back to school, you obviously went on to higher education. You have both your bachelor's and your doctorate degree from UMass Lowell in sociology and then from the graduate school of education respectively, which makes you a double river hawk, as the students and alumni would know. UMass Lowell, of course, the entire UMass system has a long and interesting history of expansion. For many years, I don't think it was even the UMass system, so to speak. If you can kind of talk us through the evolution of that name, even before you started working there, which going back, you know, well over 100 years, right? Right. Well, you know, I could certainly talk about when we became a system. I'm not old enough to talk about when each of the campuses went on in. But with that, we were all established in the great traditions of public education. You know, I look at UMass Lowell, and we started as Lowell Technological Institute and Lowell State Teachers College, serving two really important workforces that were really needed in the greater Lowell area. And that was true of each of us as regional public universities. And eventually, the state of Massachusetts, I think, wisely recognized that they needed a high-powered public research university system and created UMass. And I was at the University of Lowell at the time. And I do remember us merging under the UMass system umbrella. And we were really excited because it immediately elevated our university and hands ever since. We've made great gains looking at the status of the university and advancing our public mission, especially as a public university. Of course, education and generating the next generation of the workforce is key, but also what we do in terms of contributing to the economic development of the state of Massachusetts, whether it's working with companies to help them to advance their products, their research, but also to advance the goals of the state of Massachusetts. And I think we play a critical role in doing so. Sounds like you're describing investing and making an impact on the full life cycle of that and having it all come full circle for everybody. Yeah, I agree. love it. I think that's right. After you got your diploma, the first in your family, so after graduation, fairly early on in your career, you worked in the Lowell area First, I think with folks with special needs and then subsequently with a foundation for refugees. This was late 70s, early 80s. Yes. Talk us through those experience and the demographics of those that you worked with and how that experience might have impacted your interest and focus later on at UMass Lowell. Yeah, thanks for that question, Colin. You know, that early work for me, basically working as a social worker in nonprofit organizations where actually I always ended up in a director's role. I don't know why that was kind of always called to be ending up in the leadership role. But honestly, those really created the foundation of my work going forward in education. You know, I developed a great passion for working with students with special needs and then later on with the immigrant community and my work with the Indo-Chinese Self-Help Organization. And you find in those frontline roles, working in these frontline social service agencies and nonprofits, the great work that they do, just like we were just talking about teacher, and their work is God's work, if you think about it. They make so many sacrifices to be in those fields, and they make such a great difference in the lives of the people that they work with. And I found that in doing that work, that you really can make a difference in each person's life. You know, just by giving them hope, by being there and providing them 
Sometimes it's just that little bit of support that they need to get through one particular challenge that they're facing. For some people, it's a lifetime of challenges. But in either case, you know, these nonprofit agencies, which I had the honor and privilege of serving in, can make a very big difference. Well, that's very well said. And clearly, you took a lot of those lessons and experiences from working there onto your time at UMass Lowell. And so, you know, Jackie, as we sit here now, you know, you've become something of a legend at UMass Lowell for all that you've achieved through your career on campus. And we look forward to diving into a great deal of that. But going back to the start of your UMass Lowell career, you know, roughly this is the mid 1980s or so. What was your first role on campus at the time? Were you kind of aware that this was the place you might want to spend the majority of your career? Yeah, I actually started out in kind of a dual role. I was teaching as an adjunct professor in the women's studies course. There was a very strong believer in the advancement of women. And the women's movement was very alive at that time. So that was important to me. And the other work that I did was in developing students that was called the Talent Surge Program. Some people remember it as TRIO or Upward Bound where we would work with inner city youth and help them find a pathway to the university. So setting up academic programs to support their development. That was my early career work at university, which quickly morphed into working in admissions, which is still a great passion of mine because I think that's just such a critical point in young people's life when they make that choice of which college are they attending. We've had the good fortune of talking with a lot of people on this podcast and people that we made on the golf course who've been successful. And one interesting aspect that kind of plays through is when they take on a big role and become responsible for a large group of people and the perspective looking back on it and what the expectations were when they you know, were more junior. So knowing your accomplishments through your 40-year career, it certainly seems that no challenge was too big for you. But when you first took on some of those major responsibilities, you know, administrator, then the dean, executive vice chancellor, eventually chancellor, did you ever feel at any point was like, I'm overwhelmed? And if so, who or what were some of the things that you leaned on, like a past experience or someone who was a mentor to help you progress in your career? You know, I have been very fortunate coming up, as you know, my story is coming up through the ranks. So I did work at every level of the organization and I think coming from my background, I didn't always have the confidence that I was the right person for the next step in the job. So I was really lucky early in my career to have a special mentor who is William Hogan, Dr. Hogan, who is Marty Meehan's predecessor. And he obviously saw some talent in me that I wasn't always aware of myself. I'll be perfectly honest. I remember him saying to me when he wanted me to become the dean of continuing ed, I frankly turned him down and said, I just don't think I'm ready for that. It was a big responsibility. And at the time, he was quite a visionary himself. It was a small program. You know, we did ballroom dancing and archery, (laughs) maybe generated like a million dollars a year for the university. I want you to take this and make it like, I don't know, $20 million operation and it needs to generate (laughs) that revenue. And I definitely thought that was way beyond. I was a traditional academic. I never run a business. And so this quickly morphed into really developing and running a business, which I had great passion for. He saw that in me and he encouraged me. And of course, gave me a lot of advice and mentoring along the way. He's a brilliant man, literally a rocket scientist. (laughs) So 
we took that small program together along with a lot of hardworking people at the university and turned that into what is now a $60 million organization. 40% of it is net revenue that helps uh, support the bottom line of the university. So that's kind of how I got my start as an entrepreneur. So back to your point, you know, the role of mentors who see something in you that sometimes, especially with someone with a background like myself, especially as a woman in a non-traditional field, you know, being first-gen college, you need that encouragement. And so I know a lot of your supporters are in that role and can provide that to the next generation. So back to your question, Colin, that was absolutely critically, essentially important for me and my development. Well, it sounds like he had incredible foresight in what he saw in you. And, you know, among the many things that stand out from your legacy, one is your incredible foresight in online education. You know, UMass Lowell became one of the first brick and mortar schools, if you will, to offer a comprehensive online education and degree program. And in the last 25 years, it's become, you know, a staple in that school's educational offerings. Going back to the beginning, can you talk us through the launch and subsequent growth of that online education program? How were you, speaking of foresight, so aware of online courses being, say, the next frontier for education? You know, I feel that one of the greatest lessons that Bill Hogan taught me was to always keep your eyes on the future. You need to, every year, every summer, look out 10 years. Where are we going? Where are we headed? And I think about that lesson, trust me, a lot right now because we're at another one of those pivotal shifts. But you go back to the world of online, and here I was tasked with growing this continuing ed program, and I was competing with great schools like BU, who had a great continuing ed program. And we were probably at about 20 million then. And so how am I going to morph this into 40 million? We were still up on dial-up modems, you know, (laughs) if you think about it. The web had just been introduced and this new online thing was just happening. And I said, I think this is something we need to look at. And we started building it. And honestly, we built it with the technology companies around us because they knew they needed to figure out what a learning management system is. What is a CRM? Those words weren't even around. (laughs) Customer relations management. Yeah, we worked with a lot with technology companies. I was very fortunate to have a faculty, which was a stumbling block for a lot of colleges. But the faculty had confidence in me and said, okay, you know, we'll try this with you. We don't really believe this works, this online education thing. (laughs) Okay, if you think it's worth trying, we'll do a pilot. So we pilot it. We focused first with information technology because obviously those would be the most proficient users. They knew how to get around the technology. That was true of their faculty too. They kind of have it in their DNA that they want to experiment with technology and push its limits. So that's what we did. We started there and the rest was history once it took off. And we focused on, I will say, it's important to differentiate because this is a question today in higher ed. We focused on adult learners because we felt adult learners are mature. They're not really there for the student life experience. They're really there to get the knowledge, the content, and the experience with seasoned faculty. So we built the program very much based on what you would experience in a face-to-face class. So small classes, you know, at the idea, everybody thought, oh, you know, we can have thousands of students in a class. 
we still keep finding out. You can't do that. Right. Education is about <laughs> the faculty student interaction. So we keep our classes, you know, around 20 to 30 students. There's a lot of interaction built into it. And because I think we focused on quality delivery to our students and what our students wanted, it did morph into one of the most nationally recognized programs in the country. It's absolutely amazing to read about it and to hear about the growth from when it you know didn't exist. You guys are working on it together with technology companies to build this for the first time. It's incredible. And so much of what you just said is relevant more so than ever today. Yeah. You know, given what we know now in 2023, how was the school perhaps even more prepared for COVID changing life across the country? Did it sort of go on as you had already built for the last 15, 20 years? Or did you continue to learn things over the last five years? All the above. So we were perfectly positioned to flip the switch when we had to move online, probably better than most. 50% of our faculty teach online, of the full-time faculty. So they were very prepared. We had all the wraparound services. They were all, I have a great IT team at UMass Lowell. They were ready to, again, flip the switch and extend it to everybody, which they did. So it really did help us to get through the pandemic and make that happen in a quality way. I do think going forward, this remains a big question for higher education. Where does this work? How does it work best? You know, we look at undergraduates. Honestly, we've been doing pilots and experiments and research on this for years. And we know when you go strictly online education, it does not work well for undergraduates. They're just not there for so many. And, you know, that's not for this podcast. That's for some nice <laughs> research conference. But honestly, anybody who has young people, you know, undergrad, you know, they need the whole experience. It's part of their development. So we know that. So at UMass Lowell, we have gone back to on-campus teaching. But it does help you in situations where there are emergencies. There's far greater ability to faculty, staff, and students to interact without having to get to campus. So that, I think, enhances all of those communication. So I think we're trying to take the best, to your point, of what we learned going through the pandemic and apply it and improve the experience of students and faculty. I think we still have a lot of lessons to learn, and it will take years for us to take the best of what we learned from that. But it makes it, again, a very exciting time, a time of change. You can't prepare for everything in golf and certainly can't prepare for everything in your industry, but your preparation and your goals that you had set seems to have clearly helped with some additional pivots that had to happen. So sure. congrats to you and the team. Yeah. Thank you. you know, Jackie, to say that you were involved in the creation and growth and expansion of many programs is certainly an understatement at UMass Lowell. So one that stands out to us that we'd love to hear more about, you've kind of started to set a standard with it. Can you tell us about the Difference Makers program? That competition seems closely tied to entrepreneurship, which is something we continue to see more and more we met scholars committing to in their education. So, you know, how did that start? What is its function? My greatest legacy is, I think, to UMass Lowell is the Difference Maker program and really bringing in that entrepreneurial spirit. One of the reasons Marty Mann would tell you why he tapped me as his number two was he knew that UMass Lowell, we needed to really transform who we were. And I'll get to your question about entrepreneurship in a minute, but if I could, you know, like a lot of institutions, we were struggling with being a traditional academic institution. How do we continue to grow declining state revenue? And so Marty tapped me from my background in entrepreneurship. 
And we engaged with a group, I don't know if you've ever heard of Desh Deshpande. He was the founder of Sycamore Networks. He's an incredible philanthropist, and he really believes that entrepreneurship is the solution to so many things. So he talked to Marty and I, and he said, you know, you really need to take what you're doing at UMass Lowell and this spirit of entrepreneurship and build it across the curriculum and think about how you can engage young people in building that into their repertoire of skills. So we introduced entrepreneurship across the curriculum. We started majors in our Manning School of Business, which we hadn't had before. And then we launched the Difference Maker Program, which, by the way, tomorrow night I'll be judging in our, I think it's 11th year anniversary contest. We have a $50 million pitch off. It's very, very exciting. Incredible. Yeah. So we have, you know, thousands of students each year go through entrepreneurship training. They get called themselves down to maybe 40 or 50 groups that compete in a first pitch off. We select the 10 groups and those 10 groups will compete tomorrow night for $50,000 in prizes. Through the years, we've had about 50, maybe 60 spinoffs of companies that our students have started originating through the Difference Maker program. You know, some of them are smaller, some are bigger. You may have heard of Invisiware, which is actually a product that is now sold on Amazon. It's a multi-million dollar company started by a couple of, you know, I think they were sophomores when they pitched their idea for uh, bracelets and charms that would be an SOS. They started with the idea for women, but now it's gender neutral that you can wear this little charm on your little bracelet or necklace. And if you're in trouble, you hit a button and an alert goes out to five people that you choose to alert if you're in trouble. And the creator came up with this idea because she was an undergrad and I think she had had her purse stolen or she was hearing these stories of women being abducted and trunks of car. How do you send out that alert? So now it's obviously she's gotten a lot of, they both have gotten a lot of attention and have millions and millions of dollars investment to advance their product. So they're one example of one of the successful businesses. But what we love about Difference Makers, to be honest with you, is even the students that don't want to create a big company, for our students, you know, first-generation students, I think one of their biggest challenges to overcome is to take a chance and take a risk. You know, sometimes they're a little worried. They go with the safe bet. And life today, it's really important to learn how to be innovative, be out on the edge. And they find they have talents in themselves just by having that opportunity. So Difference Makers has become just a great program. We have a philanthropist and a team of donors who actually fund the cash prizes every year. But the students really benefit from Difference Makers. Kudos to you on that program, Jackie. It sounds incredible. And I, candidly, I wish my school had a program like that. When I was there, you know, I never once considered you know, an entrepreneurial route. And I think what you just hit on is exactly right. I just went sort of down a standard path of college. And if nothing else, as you said, even if you don't become the next billionaire company creator, it helps you think outside the box, right. even in a more standard position. So I think that program is incredible. You know, Continuing through your career at UMass Lowell, you achieved a really incredible position when you were named executive vice chancellor in 2007. And there were some significant objectives and benchmarks put squarely on your shoulders at that time, one of them being UMass Lowell 2020, which was a 10-year strategic plan. Thinking back on that, how was it developed and what exactly goes into building a plan of that magnitude? 
Colin and I, we work in fundraising, not quite on that scale. Uh, but I think we both find it fascinating and potentially overwhelming to imagine what the early days of building a decade-long plan of that scale. So if you can walk us through that, what do you remember from those early days? As I started to say earlier, we were at a critical turning point where everybody remembers Marty Meehan came in in 2007. We were stalled. We had a budget deficit for like five years. It was just a really challenging time. And then that recession hit. So when we went into 2010, we're a school of about 9,000 students. People were pretty demoralized. And in some cases, we hadn't had new faculty and departments in 30 years. So we had a very shall I say, come to Jesus moment with the whole campus. And like I said, I had worked with the faculty coming up through the ranks. And we all agreed that we had to make really substantial changes. We had to really reorganize, restructure the way that we did things. So I'm a firm believer in engaging as many people as possible. We had over 250 people involved in developing that strategic plan. We launched it in 2010. Many of us were thinking, how are we ever going to get from where we are to where we want to be? 9,000 students. We said we want to be 18,000. You know, we had an endowment of $32 million. We thought, let's say $100 million. We didn't even have students studying abroad, to be honest. Let's have a study abroad office that helps our students to go study abroad. We were at Division One. How do we get there? Every big question that you could ask yourself, we had to ask ourselves. And so we worked, I think, everyone on the campus, faculty and staff, students, we all pulled together, the administration. A lot of people made a lot of sacrifices, but we set our goals really, really high. And we exceeded those goals every year. I think that was key to it. When we put pen to paper, they were not just ideas. They were numbers. Okay, so this year, you know, one of our problems we weren't retaining students. How do we improve our student retention, which is at about 70% for freshmen? We need to get that back up to 85. As students come here, we need to make sure they stay and that they graduate, oh, by the way. So we did all that. We put all of the pieces in place. We had to make some changes and eliminate some things that weren't contributing to that path. So there were a lot of sacrifices, but a lot of high energy and positive thinking and ambitious goals that were clear to everybody. We set 25 benchmarks. It was hard to get it down to 25, to get, you know, 2,000 people to, you know, because we have a whole campus, <laughs> get everybody agreed. I mean, it's 25, if we hit these, then we will get there. But if we don't, if we miss one, it all falls apart. So that's what we did. We created that by consensus and... I do believe because everyone on campus understood how important every single one of those goals were. It might have seemed insignificant. You know, if you're a housekeeper, what we do in research, that might not make sense. You know, why is that important to me? Well, if it means we're going to be able to expand facilities and improve your working condition, okay, yeah, maybe I better work harder and make sure these places are really up to what they need to be. So I think, again, everybody really pitched in, almost literally. There's so many great stories about the accomplishments that we made together, but you know, you're in the fundraising business and one of our greatest accomplishments and points of pride is the great participation of our faculty and staff and students philanthropically in helping the university to achieve the goal. 
that we set forth, nearly half of our faculty and staff give philanthropically to you. That's very uncommon in a public university. I would dare say for even private. So this was a team effort. It was a whole culture that changed itself and embraced this idea. The results are in the numbers. We were one of the fastest growing universities in the country for five consecutive years. We were one of the four fastest growing in the U.S. News and World Report rankings for four years. So, you know, and I could go on, but it wasn't the numbers, but we got there, you know, now 18,000 students strong, a great faculty and staff contributing, I think, to the future of the next generation of students and to our community around us. These benchmarks, Jackie, they're just incredible. And I know you're too humble to go through all 25, but I encourage other people to do that. I mean, adding or renovating 20 buildings. And I mean, I didn't even realize the faculty giving element to that. So you must feel an incredible pride, again, with the team effort. That's a great transition because I did want to touch on in 2015, I think a lot of this success or maybe not all the benchmarks had been checked at that point, but they said, okay, let's see who's leading this strategic plan. And you were selected then as the first female chancellor to lead UMass Lowell. And I know from talking to you in the past, it's all about the students and not your title. But as a former student at that school, there had to be a moment of pride where it hit you and it sunk in for you, a first-generation college student, now chancellor. And secondly, just as a follow-up and, and let you go, what was the main goal for that next step, your tenure in that particular position once you were chancellor? So first, I just I want to acknowledge Marty Mann and thank him for investing in me and naming me as his number two. And then he was the president when he named me as chancellor. So I really appreciated and he brought so much enthusiasm to those plans and so much passion. And he's an alum himself. So together we share this passion of really focusing on students. And for me throughout my career, I said to my team that it was always one of my motivations just keep the students in front of you. And if you always focus on the students, you will always make the right decision. And it's just so true. So that was certainly central to me. You know, I met with our students every month. I included them and asked for their candid feedback about where we were and in the early days, frankly. And I talked to uh, some of our older alums, the experience we were giving our students was not great. You know, we were survival of the fittest kind of technology school. So to turn that around and to make it into a place where our students have the greatest pride in being Riverhawks and working hand in glove with our students to do that. You do know me. That was my greatest passion. And to see their joy, you know, in another month, I'll be at commencement. And to know what they went through to be there sitting on that stage is just no greater feeling. You know, the second part of your question was in 2015, what was the focus at that point? Among the other things that we needed to keep going was to green the campus. You know, we were all at a turning point, but I do think UMass Lowell was a little ahead of itself. We were ahead of ourselves, I'll say that. And I established the first Office of Sustainability on campus. And we take great pride in being named the number one green campus in the state of Massachusetts. Wow. We have every year by the lead ranking authority for six years. Hmm. That means we beat out all the very good private schools, public schools in UMass. That's incredible. Across the state, we are number one, UMass. That's a great point of pride for us and our students and faculty and staff. 
you know, we know that the We Met program was something that you were well aware of during your time at UMass Lowell now for many years. There have been about a dozen We Met scholars every year attending UMass Lowell. It's one of the most attended across, you know, our students go to school across the country, but there are a lot on UMass Lowell's campus and hundreds of thousands of dollars awarded to those students in the time when you were leading the school. You know, for example, I remember at Vesper, actually, you know, last year's speaker at the annual meeting, Eric Roy. I'm sure you know countless examples, names and faces over the year, you know, many of whom are first generation students, many of whom are female and truly did require the assistance. You know, is there something special knowing that your school believes in these particular students and we met donors, you know, are also investing in those same students? To be honest, our students are exemplars of the WMAT scholars recipients because they are so hardworking, humble, but driven, you know, gritty. They want the best for their future and they're not afraid to work for it. I think that, you know, could describe your students. And you look at Eric Rory, what a great example. Such a positive, enthusiastic, driven young man, graduated with a 4.0 in mathematics and meteorology, two of our <laughs> toughest majors. I'm sure I couldn't do that in either major alone. But he has great passion, has gone on to work. He's working on his PhD, published, you know, but credits that scholarship that he received from Wimat and other scholarships that he received with his success. So I think what's important about that is we had that event at Vesper, and, but we also had a luncheon pre-pandemic, which your prior president, Jim Moriarty, which we started out by talking about, you know, Jim really felt strongly and he was so great about this, is getting the members of your organization together with our recipients, our student scholars, and to see the dynamic in the room. And here you had these young people who are at that formative stage of their lives looking up at the people who are responsible for giving them a scholarship and what was going through their minds, you know, and how grateful they are. And not just for the money, as we've talked about, it is that, you know, acknowledgement that somebody who doesn't even know me is helping me and supporting me and has confidence in me. And on the other hand, You've had your donors and your leaders looking at the young people. There is no substitute, I don't think, from sitting across from an Eric Roy and seeing how much of a difference you are making by investing in this next generation because you're giving them hope, hope for the future, that by working together, back to our earlier comment, working as a community, we can accomplish so much more together. Thank you, Jackie. I mean, again, I'm just being reminded here, UMass Lowell, again, ahead of the curve, that event on campus several years ago, that was our first event on a campus for the WeMet community and the college community. And now, 2023, Thomas oversees a program, WeMet Onward, you know, networking and connecting students at many of our schools each year is becoming more and more of a focus and glad that we were able to, all right, let's try this out. So we've now had a few WeMet events where you know, I know you've highlighted in your remarks how critical scholarships are. I'm a scholarship recipient. Thomas received scholarships. And, you know, the thank you notes that we receive from the recipients that we pass along to the donors or meeting them at events. What anything stick out in your mind in terms of hearing directly from those students who are so thankful and coming up to you and how it, it's triggered something or even that extra boost. As you said in the beginning of this conversation, it could be that pebble in the pond. You don't know what the impact you're going to have and what it could lead to. As you know, a uh, real joy in the work that I've done is raising funds for scholarships. And my husband and I have also given philanthropically. It is 
amazing to hear our donors talk just what you said, Colin. When they receive the letters of what's happened and how they've changed the lives of our students. So our students, you know, they're a broad spectrum of recipients. Some of them are much more needy than others. Some, it does make a difference between them being able to buy books. I remember an alum who told the story how she had received a scholarship at one point. We have a special emergency funds set up for students who something just goes bump in the night. And for our students, they can live right on the edge, you know, just getting through college every semester. And she said she was able to borrow money to buy new tires for her car. She got a flat tire and they wouldn't let her just fix it. Mm-hmm. She didn't have money for new tires and she was a commuter. That would have meant the end of her coming to school. This was pre-online. Anyway, she did get that fund. So we have that range of students from there to the students like Eric Roy. It made a difference of him maybe not working three jobs. He only had to work two. So either to say, see, I was able to cut back. And then eventually Eric was working in a lab with a faculty member because he didn't have to go to work in another setting. So I think there's a range of need there, but the appreciation, there is no end to their appreciation for the investment that donors make in them. To hear their story is really profound and the appreciation is great. One of the nice things that I've found in working here for six years is that certainly the students are above and beyond grateful for what they've received. But when they do, as you both have just noted, when they reach back out to the donor who perhaps funded their scholarship, sometimes the donors now, especially now in 2022, will reach out to us or to the kid and say, thank you for being so kind and thoughtful and generous for receiving it. It seems like such a great philanthropic experience. So it really is wonderful. I think you just hit the nail on the head. And, you know, as we wrap up here, while we have you, we'd love to ask, there was a time, certainly 25 years ago or so, that you, again, were on the forefront and the cutting edge of trends in higher education. And so looking ahead now, five, 10 years down the road, how do you think colleges and universities will adapt sort of to the changing economy and educational landscape? And what do you maybe see as some of the coming frontiers for colleges and universities? Oh, I think we're going to dramatically reinvent ourselves. I was just a featured speaker at an architectural firm in Boston, Perkins and Will. So you look at it even that level, architecturally, these big firms, they know we are going to go through complete changes in the way that we organize our space, the way we organize our learning experiences, the way that students live on campus, residence halls need to be reconceptualized, and the way that our faculty work and interact with our students. So really just changing our space to accommodate new ways of thinking and learning. And also, I would say, as importantly, rethinking the connections with our extended communities around us and how we interact together, how we work with companies. This is something that at UMass, we have great pride in working hand in glove with companies across the world, really to think about the future of companies. I mean, I just taught a course last semester on managing the future of work. Right now, I'm teaching about managing change and conflict in higher education. So I think that we will be reinventing ourselves to your earlier point where you can take greater and greater advantage of the technology that we have our fingertips. But I think we also are finding we need to take more time to make that human connection more real. Uh, I think people are feeling a need to find a way to do that. Who's pandemic? Right. 
And I think some of the principles that, for example, that WMET have, the WMET Caddy program, the Scholar program, what we are doing at the university to connect our students to the community, those are all important features of the next generation of colleges and universities. Well, well said. And Dr. Maloney, we really cannot thank you enough for your time today. It's an honor to have you on and thank you for all you did and continue to do to champion the We Met Scholarship, We Met Scholars at UMass Lowell and throughout Massachusetts. But as we wrap up, you know, on a lighter note, I know you've continued teaching. I think perhaps we'll love to continue teaching, but you've certainly earned some time off in the coming years. Do you plan to spend as much time on the golf course as you do in the classroom or where do you hope the game brings you in the near future? <laughs> Definitely. Spending more time on the golf course. That's Great. a definite kind of post-retirement goal. Get my handicap back a little closer to where it used to be before this job <laughs> and before grandchildren. I love the game of golf, like I said, and definitely plan to spend time out there. And as I said earlier, would love to have you two out at guests. I mean, one of the fun things for me, to be honest, is when our alumni come back to this area and many of them having attended say Lowell Tech or Lowell State when they were caddies at Vesper. Now some of them members at some of the best golf courses in the world, they can play wherever they want. They are so desperate to get back on that course and they love to be back to Vesper. So I'll be doing some of that as well. So look forward to how it's Yeah, Vesper is one of the best, but yeah, thank you so much. Jackie, thanks to you and thanks to Ed for your passion, support, and personally investing in We Met Scholars as well for so long. Happy to do it. 